Welcome to Bob Got a Microphone, the podcast that exists because I, Bob Tarantino, bought a microphone. There are a lot of interesting people out there, and these are some of their stories. Today I'm speaking with David Quentin Steinberg. The last few years have been pretty interesting for David. Normally he's a lawyer in Toronto, but in 2018 he found himself in Japan, playing music that he had recorded more than 30 years previously to an attentive and appreciative audience. In 2021, he's the drummer on tracks recently released and due to be released by Alex Lifeson, the legendary guitarist for iconic rock band Rush. This is his story. All right, David Steinberg, welcome. How are you, Bob? I'm good. I'm going to start with a little bit of a capsule biography. And feel free to correct me if I get it wrong. But I think it's important to kind of situate what happened here because I'm not sure that you, because you're in it, I'm not sure that you appreciate how sort of fascinating this is. So, or how how bizarre. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't want to start using that word, but (laughs) thank you. You grew up in Toronto in the late seventies, you join and perform in some punk bands in Toronto, one of which is the Mods, all quite well regarded. Steve Bader's lead singer for the Dead Boys recruits you to join his band. You move to LA, you spend a couple of years in LA working, recording, touring. Mm-hmm. You then come back to Canada. In 1981, you release a solo record under your stage name of David Quinton. I made millions. And made millions, right. You decide with those millions of dollars, what am I going to do with my life? And you decide to become a lawyer. So you become a lawyer, do the sort of fairly conventional, you get married, kids, become a successful lawyer. Then in 2018, at this point, just to clarify, you're 58 years old. It's been over 30 years since the record has come out and you get flown to Japan to perform your music from your solo record on tour in Japan. Help me understand how that happens. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I'll just I'll just go back a little bit. It wasn't my solo album, Right to Law School. Um, after the solo album, I actually played with uh, the Jitters, and then I played with the Vancouver band Strange Advanced. I was just their just their tour drummer. Mm-hmm. So I left touring in 1986, uh, which doesn't seem that long ago for me. And I think I think our last shows were sometime during the summer. And that September, I went to law school. And there was a strange advanced video, a song called We Run, that had done very well. And there was a video of it. And I was in this video. And it was still in medium rotation at Much Music at the time when I was starting law school. So there was this this funny kind of overlap. So my solo record, which was done in 1981, you know, was was a, a fairly obscure item. I, I toured and, you know, tried to promote it, but I was on a relatively small independent label at the time. And uh, to put it in perspective, we're talking 40 years ago now. And what happened was the uh, the little mini tour you're talking about was actually 2019. We had first gone to Japan in 2018. I mentioned to uh, the owner of the record company who had put out the mods record. I said, I'm, I'm going to Japan on vacation. And he said, well, I, I'll set you up with some people. And I said, why? And he said, well, there are some people there that know you. And I said, that's impossible. I said, what, like they know Steve Baders or they know, he goes, oh yeah, they know Steve Baders, but they know the mods too. And they know your solo album. And I said, Simon, that is absolutely impossible. My solo album is dead and buried. 
and has been for over 35 years. And he said, well, you'll see. So he introduces me online, particularly to a uh, owner of a Japanese record store in Tokyo and the owner of a club in Tokyo. And they said, if you're coming here, you have to play for us. You have to come to the, to the club and play. And I'm like, play what? What do you want me to do? And they said, we'll supply a piano for you. We'll set up the sound. And will you play songs just on piano from your first album? And that was the first time I was in Japan. That was 2018. I said to my wife, look, three people will show up and we'll have drinks with them and it'll just be a fascinating little experience and I'll play the song. Well, instead, the place was absolutely packed. When I say packed, you have to keep in mind I'm talking maybe 75 people. It's a very, very small club and it's super cool. It's called Poor Cow. And to pack that place, that's all you need. You need sort of 50, 60, 70 people. Right. And what was so phenomenal is not only did people come, but they had copies of my first album on vinyl. Amazing. The original album. Right. And some of them wanted to take pictures and some of the people wanted me to sign their records for them. Some of them had my CD, you know, of my first album that was released in the 90s. And they all had like Mods records and Stiv Bader's records as well. And it was just a mind-blowing alternative reality. And so actually, can you just, can you give me a sense of the audience at that show? And so just to clarify, so 2018, you go, you play a couple, you, you play at the, sorry, was it Happy Cow? What cow? At poor, at poor Cow. Poor Cow, sorry. So 2018, you played at a show at Poor Cow. And then the next year you go back and you play multiple dates in different yes. cities. Okay. And so what, what kind of audience are you getting there? Like, is it, is it people who were exposed to this music or were listening to this music, you know, when it came out, like they were teenagers in 1981 or whatever, or is there a, a, an age range that like, can you see younger people, older people who are, who's, who's coming to those shows? Well, it was really a, a cross section of people. I don't know that they were quite my age, but they were a little younger. So there were definitely people that were sort of kind of involved in, in, in the scene, you know, the punk new wave scene at the time. But there were a lot of young people as well. And what I really found out about Japan and Japanese culture is people are interested in what they're interested in. They're not self-conscious about it. They don't care whether it was big or popular or, or what their friends think or what other people think. That's very much a North American thing where we are judged for our tastes. It's not like that in Japan. They don't care. So as a result, you have a lot of cultists in, in the music area. So the people that hang out at Poor Cow and in this particular scene are really, really interested in 1977 to 1981 punk, new wave, and power pop music. And that's my sweet spot, and that's where I came from. So they are not only interested in that era, but they have an encyclopedic knowledge. You know, they would really go down the rabbit hole. They know all the bands. They know all the artists. You know, I when I first walked into Poor Cow, it's covered in posters and flyers of bands from the era. And I was kind of walking through going, oh, my God, that's so cool. That's, you know, 
this band, that band. And all of a sudden I see Teenage Head. And I said, guys, you know, Teenage Head, I used to play gigs with them when we were in the mods. We used to play together a lot. I think we did about 25 shows with Teenage Head. And they knew all about that band. They knew everything. They knew bands from Toronto, the Vile Tones, the Diodes, the Ugly. They knew all these bands. So their, their knowledge is encyclopedic. It's sort of insatiable in the sense that they just want to learn more and more and more. And they're patient in, in that learning process. You know, mm-hmm. it's not that 30 seconds and then they are on to something else. And I think a big part of it is the collection of physical copies of music as opposed to using Spotify and Apple Music. So they're, they're still into buying records in Japan, vinyl and CDs. So that still exists. Right. And so what is it about either the music, Japanese culture that you think makes this particular music resonate with them because it strikes me so i mean your album i mean i've listened to it It, i I think it's fairly sort of characterized as power pop and and i don't mean this at all in in any way disparagingly like i think it would be difficult for you or for any random any other participant in the toronto music scene of the late 70s through the early 80s to fill a room in a lot of countries right you couldn't go to argentina couldn't go to germany presumably it'd be tough if you went to nigeria but in Japan, there's an audience for this music. Is there something about the music or about them that sort of makes this still kind of an object of fascination for them? I don't think so. I think it's that there is a cult for everything there. Yeah. In other words, there are Japanese kind of subculture that's into California soft rock. You know, there's a Japanese subculture that's into jazz. This just happens to be the subculture that's into that era of new wave punk power pop. So I, I just think there are lots of different genres that, that Japanese people and, and culture will get involved with. But I was so shocked to learn of the degree of their knowledge. You know, they just knew so much about not only my music, but everybody in this genre. And it's very positive and it's, it's, it's almost, well, it isn't almost, it's very emotional because I think that not only are they into the music and not only do they understand it, but they don't care about things like age. So just like in the same way that, that they're not self-conscious about what they like, they don't care that we're old, you know, that, that, the, that the guys that made this music are old. They'll, they'll refer to us as sensei. So they have, they have a respect for the people that made this music. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, it's, it's completely mind-blowing. Because let's face it, from North American culture, you know, I'm getting to that age where I'm, I'm getting used to being made fun of for how old I am. Right. And I'm certainly not seen as hip or cool uh, at my age. But in, in Japan, in this particular subculture, they don't care how old I am. They just think it's cool that we go, some of us, and, um, and play for them. They really, they really dig it. Now, somebody explained it to me this way. They said, when we were young in the, in the 70s, guys like Willie Dixon, Howlin' Wolf, they would come and play the Elma Combo. And I remember a lot of young people going and seeing these old blues masters, you know, just because they were into the music and they wanted to learn about it and see what it was all about. 
to actually watch them live. So somebody said, it's kind of like that. It's kind of like that vibe, except we're talking punk new wave power pop. Amazing. And do you get the sense, is there a current live or living power pop music scene in Japan? Like, are they, it, it, so in other words, is, is this music sort of an artifact for them? Like, are, are they looking at it and going, oh, like, that's kind of interesting. It happened, you know, however many years ago, or is it influencing sort of current activity in, in Japan? Oh, there are current bands that sound like this and play like this. Hmm. Um, so, and some of them are very, very good. You know, there's the flashlights, there's back to basics, uh, ruler, fire starter. I got to know a you. lot of bands. Right. Um, Dropping the knowledge. I like it. <laughs> yeah. And, and they're really good. You know, so I'll, I'll tell you whenever you're ready about going back to in 2019 and doing this mini tour. But yeah, I've learned a lot about, about their bands. And yeah, they, they sound like we did. Amazing. And so, and let's talk about 2019. I mean, so, and, and just to, again, sort of provide further clarity here. I mean, you hadn't visited Japan like in 1981. It's not like you had gone there no. and toured there then. I mean, were you aware at all that the music had even penetrated Japan? Like, did you know, oh yeah, of course, like my record label is, you know, they've got a, they've been promoting it in Japan or, or in any other country or did this totally no, come as a zero. shock? I had zero knowledge of it you know to, to to put it in its proper perspective it's not like i go there and there are thousands of people that's not the no. it's not the point the point is if they're 75 or 100 or 150 it blew me away it shocked yeah. me because i literally thought that my music was forgotten except for maybe one song that i'm associated with together with stiff baiters mm -hmm. uh song called make up your mind which is which has been covered by a lot of a lot of bands. So if you look around on YouTube, there are probably like six or seven covers of that song, uh, or more, done by various bands over the year that that are, that are also into punk and new wave. You know, so American bands, Swedish. There's an Argentinian band. Like there's they're from different parts of the uh, of the world. But other than that, I thought my music was was pretty much forgotten. So I was shocked that anyone cared mm -hmm. when i played that first show in tokyo people were singing along Amazing. to to the to the songs i was playing and they knew the words right what does that and, feel like as an artist i mean that must be incredibly gratifying oh man it was just it was just a beautiful experience you know and it was incredible and and i i didn't um didn't expect it. It was like I stepped into a, a different universe and uh, it, it was really, really soul satisfying and lovely. And, and they're right. so fabulous people, you know, and not only are they interesting, but they're very sweet and very welcoming. And, and uh, so I really gained an appreciation for, for their culture and which is very different from ours. Right. Um, then what happened is um, in 2018, we went to Kyoto and now the guys from Tokyo were telling the, some people in Kyoto, Hey, David, David's here. Do you, you, if you want to meet him, he's going to be in Kyoto. And I started getting notes from punk new wave power pop fans in Kyoto. And they said, so sorry to interject, but just like, so when you say you're getting notes, like, how are they contacting you? Like, how are people interacting with you? Is this on like on Facebook or online yeah, or? on messenger so they were they were sending me notes on messenger and they were saying if you're coming to kyoto can we please 
get together? And I was like, sure. And it ended up that they put together a dinner for me and, and Kamini, uh, my wife. And we went to um, an izakaya in uh, Kyoto. And it was a group of fans. They insisted on paying for everything and even the cab to get us back to the hotel. They all had copies of my albums, basically everything I ever played on. My solo record, mods, dead boys, everything, or stiff baiters. You know, so we just had this great, great evening with tons of um, hilarious attempts at communication because there was a ginormous language barrier. Right. But what what we had in common was this was this music. You know, so we we had this dinner, and at the dinner was one guy who who lives in Japan, but he's from the U.S. and he owns a record company called Secret Mission Records. And he said to me at this dinner, he spoke English. He said, "Do you have any like old outtakes?" things that weren't released. And, and I said, yeah, yeah, I do. And he said, would you do an album? Because I'd love to put something out. <laughs> and I said, I said, yeah, that sounds like fun. Let's do that. So I went home and I thought it was going to be easy, Bob. I, I, I did not anticipate the amount of work involved in this, but I, I found old tracks that were unreleased and, um, they and put them together and we we remastered everything and they put out vinyl and uh cd i named the record overlook road which was the street that i lived on in akron ohio when i played at stiff baiters and where i wrote make up your mind and a lot of these other songs on piano mm -hmm. the packages are beautiful the vinyl is just they did a gorgeous package with inner sleeves and all this stuff and, and uh cd had this big booklet and everything nobody does that anymore right. in North America. So by time we got it all done, we were planning another trip to Japan. Daniel said to me, would you be willing to do some shows here? And I said, sure. I, I haven't played my solo material live in almost 40 years. And I said, how would we do this? Do you want me just to do like piano vocal again? And he said, no, 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 with a full band. And I said, well, how, how would we do that? And he said, well, there's a band here called Back to Basics. They know your stuff inside and out. They can do it note perfect. I was like, just freaked out. I couldn't believe it. Right. And he said, so let's, let's book some shows in um, Kyoto and in Tokyo. We, we went into town and I, and I did one rehearsal with Back to Basics. And they just killed me, you know, because they knew everything. And it was so easy uh, for me to perform and sing the songs. And they were so powerful and, you know, punky. They, they, they had this aggressive kind of sound and um, very typical of Japanese bands. They, it's a mixture of men and women. So, you know, the, the drummer, uh, guitar player, and the other guitar player, guys, but the bass player is female. And my God, was she good. And, and they were so great. And what we ended up doing was kind of interesting. We broke the set up into three pieces where I wanted to play drums for some of it. So I played drums to two of their songs, Back to Basics. And I just learned their songs. And I thought that would be a respectful mm. thing to do. Yeah. And then I sang and played drums for a couple. 
Then I went up front and sang, and then I played piano and sang on a few. And it was like, it ended up being, you know, sort of a complete show. <laughs> it was absolute blast. And I finished the first gig in um, Tokyo and my wife came up to me after the show and went, who are you? Because <laughs> <laughs> she had never seen me. She had seen me play drums live right. many, many times, but she had never seen me sing right. um, in front of band. Yeah. So what's that? sort of transformation like right because I, I i've seen you drum you're a fantastic yes. drummer you're a fantastic performer on stage yeah. when you're drumming but that's but for you know the phil collins of the world uh and the don henley's of the world that's a, a bit of a transition that you don't see very often right somebody going from being a drummer to being to being the front man and, and performing you know sort of yeah. leading leading the charge so what was that like well, I did it in 81 when my solo record came out. When we when we first toured, it was a band where I was singing and mm. we had a drummer. And then near the end of, of my solo band years, uh, or, you know, because it was a short period of time, years, it was like a year and a half or so, I ended up actually playing drums and singing where we put the drums at the front of a stage. It was kind of, it was kind of interesting and, and awkward. Um <laughs> So, so I had, but I had fronted the band in, in 81. So I was used to doing that back right. then. And it just, it was not really a big deal. I mean, you just, uh, you feel it, you do your thing. And it's, it's, it's not a big fancy show with their club gigs and they're very intimate, just a total blast to do. And I liked that I was able to combine drumming with, um, with everything else because so many of the people that came to see me uh, know me from Stiv Baders and know me from the mods. So th they think of me as like a drummer, but also a singer songwriter. Right. And as an artist, what was it like revisiting those songs 30 plus years later? Well, that was an, an amazing experience because I had forgotten all of them. <laughs> so the only thing I knew how to do or the only thing, sorry, I remembered were, were the keys that the songs were in. I don't know why, but I knew that this song was an F and this one was an E and this one was an A. I just remembered the keys, but I had to relearn the songs that I played at Poor Cow in 2018. I had to learn them from scratch. I had to learn the words again. And I practiced, you know, so before we we went there in 2018, I, I, I was ready and I was pretty well rehearsed and for 2019 for the mini tour yeah I just had to make sure I had all the words down again and and um, you know and you're, you're playing songs that that you wrote at a completely different time in your life totally different and you know it was fascinating looking at the lyrics again because and I think a lot of people that write songs um, feel this way you go back and you look at the lyrics and you go, oh, that's what I was writing about. Now I get it. Because you didn't at the time. You don't, you don't sort of sit down and say, oh, I'm going to write a song about this. It, you know, words come out, things come out, concepts, and often you don't know why you're writing what you're writing. So to be able to look back 40 years at lyrics that I wrote when I was a kid, mm -hmm. when I was 20, I'm like, wow, that's kind of cool. I, I see what I was going through and I see what I was writing and, right. you know, and what I was wrestling with. Fascinating. Yeah. Now that 
trip is not your family's only connection with Japan, right? No. Your father is a composer and he had traveled to Japan previously. He, you know, had performed his music to audience or, or, you know, he had performed his music. He, there, he had a, he had an audience in Japan. Um, yes. So how did that inform sort of your trip there? Like what, what, what was in the back? I mean, that must be an interesting feeling to go somewhere as a son uh, knowing that your father has been there before doing something similar. And I'm sure he must have given you sort of advice and, and you maybe you met people that he that knew him and, and that had worked with him before. So how, how does how do those two sort of chapters of the Steinberg family history kind of interface? Well, it was quite something um, in 2019, while I was doing this mini tour, uh, one of the things we did, we did a little detour to the um, uh, Holocaust Memorial Museum in Japan. And you wouldn't normally think that there would be a Holocaust Museum there, but there is. And it's run by a Christian uh, group. And they know my father very well. They know my father's music very well and, um, and have performed it on several occasions, including his 40-minute cantata called um, Echoes of Children that he wrote for the International Year of the Child in 1985. And it's been performed around the world, um, including in Japan. So wow. when we went to the Holocaust Memorial Center, which is an, an incredible museum and, and so strange to find in Japan, you know, they, they uh, <laughs> sort of typical of their culture and, and how just incredible these people are. We, we got this tour around the center and they took us to this little concert hall. Mm. And they said, Let, you know, we wanna show you the concert hall that we have. And I said, oh, great. We went in there, they had a pianist and a choir of their members set up to surprise us. Oh, wow. And they performed my father's music. Oh my God. To just me and my wife. And, um, yeah, if that didn't get the tears flowing, um, right. <laughs> you know, you're simply not human. So we had this amazing experience with them. And then, of course, that evening, we're off in an izakaya getting hammered with some punk rockers. <laughs> so it was, it was a fabulous juxtaposition right. of two different sides of Japanese culture, you know? Amazing. Um, and, and quite an experience, something that you you simply cannot replicate. Right, that's you know, incredible. Once in a lifetime experiences. Fantastic. So, in turn, let, let's sort of move the the dial forward here to 2021, because in addition to your journey and journeys to Japan, um, another sort of fascinating aspect of of your story is while the rest of us were you know watching netflix or whatever during the pandemic you ended up recording music with alex lifeson uh yeah. so for those who don't know alex lifeson is you know the iconic guitarist for the legendary rock band rush rush uh, sort of retired a couple of years ago um in, uh, in the wake of the passing of their drummer uh, and alex released new music this year featuring you on drums again Help me understand how that happens. How did you become the drummer on <laughs> Alex Lyson's new tracks? <laughs> well, how do I begin? He's he's a, a good friend. He we were we were together 
I can't remember when it was, but it was right before the pandemic. And he had this track that he was working on and he was sort of describing it to me. And he said, would you like to take crack at it, at, at putting some drums on it? And I was like, after I got over the shock of him asking me, um, I was like, really? Like, yeah, <laughs> it was like, yeah, you take a shot at it. So I did it and it, and it went really well. And then there were um, a couple of other songs that uh, he was working on as, a, as part of a side project, which is now called Envy of None. And this is a side project that he has with Andy Curran, who used to be in Coney Hatch, and this incredible female vocalist from Portland, Oregon, who's quite young, she's in her early 20s, named Maya Wynn. And they were working on some music together and Alex really liked it and he was contributing guitars. And at some point he and Andy asked me, do you wanna play some drums on, on some of these tracks? And I was like, yeah, yeah, for sure. So I did that as well. And when, when taken all together, I, I don't know, I think I've played on like five or six of these songs for the Envy of None project. So Alex, uh, out of the blue, just you know, a few months back, sent me this um, instrumental track that he had called Spy House. And he said, um, would you like to take a stab at this one? And again, you know, it's like... I'm, so is he like auditioning you at this? Like, are the, is that like the, this, would you like to take a stab at this? Like, he's not, <laughs> he's not, he's not committing to using you on the tracks. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I, if, if I were to be, you know, totally honest here, I think that the idea behind Envy of None and the idea of me playing with him on, on, on that track, Spy House he's having fun with friends it's it's not about getting the biggest and the best and the greatest and making the biggest splash i think he's just enjoying making music with friends in a in a no pressure environment and just enjoying himself he sent me the track we talk about how we hear it i'm i'm telling him how i hear the drums and he's telling me how he kind of hears it and then i go and i um and i i do some takes and uh you know, we got one together that he liked, and voila, it it, it got released. And and um, you know, it's it's a very very nice thing, obviously, to be doing anything with him. It's so incredibly special, and I'm very very humbled by it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's an incredible. Well, it's a testament to you know to your prowess as a drummer. I mean, but how does that? his his bandmate neil peart is you know widely regarded as one of you know if not the greatest rock drummer of all time there must be some kind yeah. of pressure that arises in stepping into those shoes like being the guy after neil peart who who plays with alex lifes and so what was that what was that like it really did not come into play or feel like that at all because first of all it's not rush Right. And for anybody to, you know, feel that they're somehow trying to step into Neil's shoes, it really would have to be Rush. It would have to be Getty and Alex with a drama. So this has nothing to do with Rush. The music is um, totally unrelated. It's completely different. When the Envy of None record comes out, people will see it's it's totally unrelated to anything that Rush did, other than the fact that you can hear the, the sound and the orchestrations of Alex's guitars. But 
no, I didn't feel any kind of pressure like that at all. It was, it was just a friend playing on a friend's recording. And that friend just happens to be one of the greatest guitar One of the most famous guitars in the world. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you, you know, it's funny because Neil, you know, Neil was a good friend uh, too. And right. um, people used to, who, who, who kind of wondered about this would ask me sometimes, you know, do you guys ever talk about drums, mm. you know, when Neil was alive? And I used to say, yes, we, we talk about drums and drumming for sure. That would come up in, in conversation. And he was, you know, in, in my eyes, simply one of the greatest players that ever existed. And, you know, then the follow-up question is, well, what was that like talking to him about drums and drumming? And I came up with this analogy. I said, let's say you were a painter and you were, you were pretty good, you know, you did paintings, you sort of painted all your life, you even sold a couple, you know, you went to a little gallery, you sold a couple of things. And your close friend happens to be Pablo Picasso. And the difference is uh, with Pablo Picasso as opposed to some other painter is he's willing to talk to you as a peer. He's willing to talk to you about paint brushes and paint colors and canvases and techniques and not get all trippy with you. That's what it was like talking to Neil about drums and drumming. Hmm. He knew who he was, and I knew who I was <laughs> in relative terms. Right. But he was such a decent individual who didn't think that way. It wasn't, he wasn't a power tripper. He wasn't about ego that way. He was more than willing to sit and have a normal conversation about Buddy Rich or, you know, Terry Bozio or Bill Bruford or any number of, of people, Ian Wallace from King Crimson. You know, we would sit and talk about different players and he was totally fine with it. If anything, if anything, the opposite was true, which is if you got, you know, into the hero worship thing with him, mm -hmm. he didn't like it. It made him uncomfortable. Right. So. He liked having normal conversations, but periodically, you know, you sort of shake your head and go, yeah, I'm sitting here with Neil Peart talking about drums. <laughs> <laughs> so now that you and Alex are tight, like, do you think, are you going to be looking for a basis? Like, will you be sitting there like calling up Getty and going like, maybe like, see what you can do with these tracks. See, see if there's something you can add to this. We'll see if it works out or not. Well, you know, because I'm friends with those guys and you know we're in situations where there's a lot of joking going around mm -hmm. um periodically the, the they'll make jokes about that you know hey why don't you just play and i would say i would say yeah that's great we can do one song and that'll be the end of the show and all. <laughs> <laughs> but in 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 reality it's it's um you know rush was was the three of them and uh and that's the only in you know in being serious for a second that that is the only version of rush that will ever exist and should ever exist right. is getty neil and uh alex and my god they did such a tremendous body of work and were so influential on so many musicians and bands um you know it really is quite quite something their body of work yeah, yeah. Fantastic. So you've released one track or, or Alex has released one track. And I think you mentioned that there, the other envy of none tracks will be coming in. Will we, will, yeah, will those there are ten, see the light there are of day? Ten, uh, 10 songs that have been done. Okay. And, uh, you know, I'm really somewhat peripheral. I've, 
played drums on some of the tracks, but it really is Andy and Maya and uh, Alex with uh, with Alf, who's the who's the producer, engineer, keyboard player. So it was it was just nice to be included uh, a little bit in that. Well, don't under, really don't did. undersell the importance of the drummer. If you don't have the drummer, there's no beat. Right? You need a beat. You do need a beat. Um, sometimes you don't need a beat, and sometimes it can be mechanically reproduced, and that might be better for the song. You know, there are all kinds of different uh, considerations that come into right. play. But I think the record is going to be really, really cool. Amazing. And, uh, it's a side project, you know, it's, right. uh, for Alex anyway. So do you have any plans? Are you, I mean, once this whole thing with the pandemic wraps up, any plans to go back to Japan or, or release new music? What, what can we expect to hear from, from you? Well, uh, honestly, uh, when that reissue came out through the Japanese label a year or so ago, I thought, that's it. I'll, I'll never release anything again. I hadn't written songs really in 30 years. I've been too busy um, being a lawyer. And when the pandemic hit, after several days of just watching TV at night, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do something weird. I'm going to go down to the basement and I'm going to play piano and I'm just going to see what happens. You know, why not? I have this time and I'm locked in my house. And all of a sudden I started writing again. And I was, I actually shocked myself because I didn't know if I'd have the patience to do it, but I really, really started getting into it. I called my boyhood friend, Anton Evans, who owns a recording studio and who himself is really a master uh, musician, bass player, guitar player, engineer, producer. And I told him, I said, you know, I, I'm writing songs. I can't believe it. And he said, we're going to record them send me what you have let's go and I was like really and he was like yes and he pushed me and we ended up doing I don't know a group of four I think at first and then he's like well we're gonna do an album right and I said what I thought four we'll stop at four and he went no we're doing an album you know he pushes me like this mm -hmm. and you know I don't know if I've ever told you about Anton but we went to kindergarten together. We've known each other our entire lives. Hmm. So we're like brothers. So we are now on song eight and I've written song nine and 10 and then I'm going to stop. So we're going to do the 10 songs. Right. You know, I've had special guests come in and uh, play. Um, Not me, their... just just to clarify. So nobody <laughs> in the audience is misled. Like I know I never got a freaking invitation. That's fine. <laughs> it's cool. It's okay. And, and, and I'm so happy with the result and you know it's been a it's been a very um interesting psychological journey because i never thought i would do this again mm. i didn't know what it would be like i didn't know if the stuff would come out good i but i'm very very happy with it and there's absolutely zero pressure i don't care i don't care if 10 people hear it, two people or 10,000 or what, or a million, I don't care. So it's a very special position to be in. I also don't care if the songs are commercial or if they could be heard on the radio. All those things that you worry about when you're a musician, you know, you're trying to get some success. All those things don't matter to me anymore. It's irrelevant. So I'm going to do 10 songs that at the end of the day that I really like and that Anton really likes and the special guests who have played on some of the songs really like. And to me, that's the 
that's the purest form of making music. You know, it's, it's, it's for you and it's about your soul. It's not about you're trying to get a record contract. Right. A little too old for that. So somebody actually who we know referred to it stylistically as power pop glam 1980s new wave pandemic rock. <laughs> I like it. Maybe that's the title of the album. I don't know. Yeah. I love it. It's got all those elements. It's kind of, it's kind of funny because you can't escape your influences, nor how you write, nor how you record. So it sounds like recordings that were done by a guy who, yeah, probably comes from the late seventies, early eighties. You can escape that. I I I couldn't do hip hop, you know what I mean? Right. Fantastic. Well, I look forward to hearing those songs when, they, when they're ready for, for public consumption. Thank you so much, Bob. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, liking it, sharing it with your friends, or inflicting it on your enemies. If you're still listening, you're probably the only one who's doing so. The secret number is 42. To claim your no prize, send an email with the secret number in the subject line to bob at bobgotamicrophone.com. Zero, zero, nine, six.